The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Today, I'm very excited to be talking with Peter Lapp, He is a retired FBI special agent currently with PJ Lapp Consulting. Does a lot in the counterintelligence, insider risk management profession, has had a great career with the FBI and now continues to give back to the community in a lot of different ways. He's here today to talk about his new book, The Queen of Cuba, an FBI agent's insider account of the spy who evaded detection for 17 years. So thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Lindy. I appreciate it. I kind of want to talk about, you know, obviously the book as we get started here. Uh, Certainly interesting. I did read it. You can get pre-order your copy now or find it wherever you buy your books. But uh, it was very interesting to read about the story. I have to say I had kind of heard the Anna Montez story at at some point, probably through some kind of insider threat training program that I was a part of. But I did not know any of the ins and outs of her story. So kind of talk about why it's relevant for somebody in the cleared community to know and what kind of prompted you to write about it. I think as you've talked about it, it's it's part of many annual security training, especially insider threat training that the government does for cleared individuals. I tried to write the book to a much more broader audience than that. I wanted folks that were interested in the true crime genre, the espionage genre to buy into it and read into it and, and learn something from it. But there's certainly things that our clear community can take away from this and our insider threat programs within governments or industry can take away from that. It's the most telling story of this story that's ever been told, the details of which that I've been able to reveal that have gone through the government's pre-publication process, as all clearance holders must do, is the most detailed telling of the story that's ever been told. And I love that. And I think that kind of relates to how you framed the book, which was really interesting to me. So I think I, I see a lot of kind of insider threat or insider risk books, and they would not be as nearly as interesting as this one is. So I feel like if you are in the cleared community, there's going to be nuggets in there that you're going to capture that are going to be applicable, that are going to be relevant. But even if you're far outside the national security or cleared community, it's an interesting read. It's a good read. And I like how you juxtapose your career and how you got started with the FBI. I love a good career origin story. I love to learn how people get in this big national security ecosystem that we're a part of. So maybe talk about that, because I think that makes the book really readable and really relevant, because you kind of go back and forth chapter to chapter, your start, your career. And then we learn about how, you know, again, I love how you you dove into her background. And you're right, you find nuggets and information, I think, 
probably because you were an agent on the case, you just knew her story, her family, her relatives, that kind of comes out in the reading of the story. So talk about how you frame that, your story and her story all coming together here. So this is not a memoir and it was never meant to be a memoir. This is about her. Kelly Kennedy, my co-writer, who is phenomenal, brilliant, great writer, really pushed me to open up and be vulnerable about me and talk about what made me, me. Because the book is written from my point of view, her encouragement was to, you know, share with the reader what got you to this point. And I do like the dual narrative aspect to it. You see, I think, loyalty from both sides of the equation, right? You see this dedication, this commitment from both sides, from my perspective and my career, my life, my values and hers. And, you know, people will read this and they're going to draw a hard opinion about whether my values and my beliefs are the right way or hers. And that's something that the reader's going to have to decide. Hopefully the clearance holders are going to side with my perspective, but you know, I'm understanding that she has fans and there are people that think that the government is evil and she's a hero. So that's going to be an interesting review, shall we say, as, as the book gets, uh, gets out there. Goodness. That's certainly interesting. From an insider threat case study, I thought it was fascinating. Again, even if you're listening to this, watching this, you've never heard what an insider risk is. I think the book is written so that it will be very relevant and very interesting regardless. It's like your title focused on her bonafides. She was the queen of Cuba. So within this national security community, she had a lot of clout. She was known as an expert in her area. And then I find it very interesting the whole time that she was very valued in her community as an expert. She was also telling everything to Cuba. So compromising the trust, the loyalty of her country. I think we kind of think about insiders, people who are sloppy, who are making mistakes, who aren't the best. In many ways, your book kind of outlines how Anna was considered the best in her craft, but then also doing really awful, I mean, in my, in my point of view, evil things and compromising national security. So do you think that made her a harder to spot insider risk? Was she kind of above scrutiny? And maybe what is the lesson learned there for folks who are looking for insider risks and in national security? Are we doing something wrong by kind of taking the people at the top out of the equation? Well, absolutely. And I think, you know, if you compare her to Hanson and Ames, you know, Hanson was a guy who professionally wasn't well regarded. People didn't like working for him, had this really dour demeanor. Ames was a drunk, you know, so those things in comparison to the amount of time they spied, very similar to Montez in terms of the almost two decades for all three of them. Anna's reputation as a queen, as an expert, in my opinion, really insulated her, acted as kind of a force field against any kind of security blips that would come up. And she did have little issues from time to time. I mean, very much in the beginning of her career, not single issue like eliminator and issues that could be interpreted as innocent, but that reputation of the queen and her accomplishments and her awards and accolades really helped insulate her from security. And I think the message there is a bias. You know, security people, if they come across a superstar, do they have an ability to independently look at that individual objectively? Or do they say, wow, no, this person is like prolific. They've received awards from the director of central intelligence. All these kind of accolades that she received, were they able to kind of analyze what they're seeing as data points objectively without being biased by the reputation? Good or bad. I find it 
it's so ironic that, yeah, she was considered the expert on Cuba. That actually was fantastic for her spying career because anybody who had insight or wanted to get into that process was probably reaching out and contacting her. So it gave her a scope even outside of her lane with the DIA that she built upon because of her expertise. Yeah. And the more she accomplished professionally from what she told us, and it makes sense, the more doors that were open for her, the more meetings she got invited to. So the better she was at her day job, the more access it provided her for her moonlighting job. So the two worked hand in hand in many ways. You know, she's a very intelligent woman, very bright, common sense wise. I think, you know, doesn't have a lot of common sense in my opinion, but very intelligent and a sharp, sharp analyst. And you know, I think the tragedy in all this, one of them is if she had just chosen to use that talent and academic and skills and intelligence for good. You know, I think she could have done so much good for the world, but she chose this path. And I, you know, my personal opinion, I think it was a waste of her time and, and a waste of 39 years of her life. You know, it'll be interesting to see over the next coming years what we learn and what comes out of it. I know she was recently released from prison, I believe. And then I think one of the statements that she was quoted as saying was, I as a person am irrelevant. I don't matter. There are serious problems in our global homeland that require attention. So like she's trying to not maybe discuss her case. And you probably know more or read more about what she said since she was released than that. It's interesting. I don't I haven't seen anything where she apologized for what she's done or if she has has any regrets. And she's still pointing to us being in a troubling geopolitical climate and being fairly anti-US in her sentiments as she's released. That's accurate. Yeah. No, no remorse, no regret that she's publicly said. That's been her only statement. And then frankly, it may be her only statement. It's kind of interesting with that statement, she released a current photo. So she wants to fly under the radar and live this anonymous life and rebuild her life. But just in case you're wondering, here's a current photo of me. It's the dichotomy of Anamantas, where she's able to argue out of both sides of her mouth in some cases. We'll see. I, th I think she's very interested and still passionate about, yeah, she's anti-American. I, I don't think there's any way of putting it. I don't, I wouldn't say she's pro-Cuba. I don't think she's, I wouldn't call her a socialist or a Marxist or a communist. She's really more anti-American in my opinion. And that's something that I think we have to continue to grapple with in 2023, this, you know, kind of anti-American sentiment that, you know, comes from all sorts of sides, if you will. So allegiance to the United States is an adjudicative criteria. And we frequently get pushback over at clearance jobs, like, in this political climate, why would you require allegiance to the United States in order to obtain a security clearance? I do think the Montes case is kind of an example of how that can go wrong. Like if you're not able to affirm loyalty and that uh, loyalty does not mean agreement by any means. And I think people very much knew that she had opinions that were contrary to the U.S. government. People across the IC do, and that's not a thing. But can you say, despite all of our differences, can I align myself and pledge allegiance to the United States, I think this case makes the case for why that is a relevant adjudicative guideline in the clearance process. Oh, I totally agree. And this is not a political case. Anna was motivated because of Reagan's policy in Nicaragua with, you know, think back to Iran-Contra, controversial foreign policy. Reagan was the president. I'm assuming she didn't vote for Ronald Reagan. You can argue that she did as much damage to national security in a Reagan Bush one administration than she did during Bill Clinton's administration. So not a political debate, not a political discussion, but a policy. Her opinion and motivation was policy driven. U.S. policy with regards to 
in her mind, this interventionalism that the United States has done over decades, you know, and there's arguments, you know, for and against that in some areas. But I think that her actions, you know, speak for themselves and they were more policy driven, definitely not. Political. Yeah. Well, so talk again a little bit about the timing of the book with her being released from prison. Is Did that factor in for you knowing like, how did you come across the timing of saying, hey, this is the time for me personally or professionally or whatever to tell this story? So I retired from the FBI just before the pandemic and went to work in industry. I just was looking for something different professionally and trying to figure out what Pete 3.0 was going to look like and do, you know, as a career. And I decided to go out on my own and do consulting for Insider Threat. I thought I had some bona fides and I had this case. Maybe I should write a book about the case that, you know, be a nice business card. <laughs> read this book and then I can talk to you about your program and, and give you some advice and counsel on where you should go, depending on how far you want to, you want to grow your program. The book took on a life of its own. It took from the time we started writing until its release is two years. And it's been a journey. Writing it has been, it was a really neat way to relive the investigation without question that 10 month period. When I got they asked to join the investigation as the co-case agent to her arrest was 10 months, and it was absolutely the highlight of my career. There's no cooler case that, in my opinion, that you can work than a real live spot and trying to figure out if you can catch them in the act of committing an espionage. There's no bigger thrill professionally as an FBI agent, but I haven't worked, you know, political corruption cases or terrorism cases. Maybe they're more exhilarating, you know, so we'll see where this goes in terms of, of business consulting, if you will. I'm actually happy with it being done and presenting it to the reader and saying, here you go. You know, the fact that there are details that have never been released is really exciting for me. And I think that the fullness of this story, you know, the individuals that, that were former Cuban intelligence officers who provided intelligence that led to all of this and telling some of their story is just so exciting for me. I just can't wait for the reader to read, you know, the chapter called Runaway, where we talk about, you know, the, the two guys that escaped on a raft. Like, it's cool and dramatic. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully it's interesting. It was super interesting. And that's what I did love, like the tradecraft that's in there, you know, talking about, I love stories. So stories are my thing. So how the different interweaving stories between Montez's family and between, you know, the intelligence community, different individuals there. I loved when you got to the part where you were, you know, like casing her apartment, just the little things that you, that you know, are a, are a part of this process, but you don't think about like, having to figure out when the neighbors are home and when they're not. And like, how do you actually get into somebody's apartment? And just all of those different things are, I find, I think are super fascinating to read about and makes it realize the importance factor and also the cool factor of working in national security careers, which I love how you kind of told your story about how you got invested in this, in this career and got to do some really cool, amazing things, giving back to our country. I love that. I think the version from the first person I was there in the room perspective, and, and just to be clear, this was a team effort. We had a lot of folks. This success has a thousand fathers, and I represent all those folks, from not just the FBI, but other organizations. And I take give them credit in the, in the book. A journalist writing about this, and that has happened, glosses over. The, what I'm feeling when I'm turning the key and walking in the room and being somewhere that I'm legally allowed to be in. But if we get caught, oh shit, like we're in big trouble. Like hopefully I can say that. It's exhilarating. And I wanted to really expose the readers to 
what I was feeling in those moments that they're so rare, getting a glimpse into how do we do that within the degree that we're allowed to talk about, but what I'm feeling as I'm doing that and the stress and challenge and exhilaration. And I've kicked in doors here and there as an agent and as a police officer, and there was nothing as cool as sneaking in legally and turning the key and going into someone's apartment and sneaking around like a cat burglar. That was pretty cool. I could, you can't top that for me. I love it when someone who is in this community can convey stories about this community in a way that is relevant to people outside the community. How many times did I say community? Did any of that make sense? But there is, you learn a lot about the intelligence community process by reading this book. You learn a lot about the court system and how you can, again, the legal frameworks you have to go through to do this. And it makes me feel, it makes me feel better and good about our country to know like, hey, we want to be investigating, you know, espionage and cases as much as we hate the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy serves a function and there is a process that you go through. And even the interagency work between the FBI and the DIA, like we all know that that gets a little complicated, but there are frameworks and and steps in place. And then the culmination of that is catching someone who is who needed to be caught and who needed to you know pay a price for what they'd done to the country. Again, you get all of that here. And if again, if you're outside and have never heard about espionage or spies or, you know, tradecraft or any of that, you're going to get a lot of information. And if you're deep in the weeds of it, it's going to come alive to you and be like, oh, this is why we do what we do. Yeah, the thing I wanted to do is, frankly, just to be candid, FBI and FBI agents have been crucified almost over the past X amount of years. And I wanted to humanize, you know, what a typical FBI agent is and does. And I, I don't say that I represent every single 35,000 employees, but I wanted to kind of in a general way say, look, these are folks that they're working these kind of investigations. And at the same time, they're trying to keep a marriage together. They're trying to start a family. They're trying to be good neighbors. They're trying to have time to cut their grass. Oh, and then in the meantime, they're chasing spies and terrorists and like trying to keep our country safe and our community safe. I shared mistakes that we made in the book because I wanted to be real. I wanted to be genuine and authentic and say, this was a screw up and that was a screw up and we own it, but this isn't Hollywood. We're human beings that make mistakes and we're not perfect, but we're all trying to do the right thing in the right way. And I hope that that message you know, comes out through the final book. I think it does. Again, I would definitely commend it. Queen of Cuba, an FBI agent's insider account of the spy who evaded detection for 17 years. Available on pre-order now. Peter Lapp, thank you so much for being on the show and chatting about it. And thank you for writing this book. I, lo- I do think, again, if it's kind of a give back to the FBI community, I commend that and love that because it does show that there's this is important work and, and great work that's being done. And appreciate what you've done. Thanks, Lindy. I appreciate it. It's great talking to you. This is Sean Bigley and Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about some pretty interesting news. Middle-aged adults are binge drinking and using weed at record levels, according to the New York Times in a recent study on this. I don't know, Lindy, what the catalyst here is. I don't know if we're all just kind of burned out and over it, if people are kind of hitting the bottle and, and turning to marijuana as a means to escape life, or if being stuck at home during COVID led people to start exploring other records recreational hobbies. I, I don't know. I'm curious. What What's your take? Okay. I got a hot take on this, Sean. So I was just talking to a friend about this. I watched Oppenheimer and then that required me to read the book and the biography. 
And it seemed like everybody back then in the 1950s was drunk all the time, too. So is this just cycle through? The 90s clothing and hairstyles are coming back now. My kids are into that. My daughter decided she wanted the full house hairstyle. We're having a little difficulty recreating that one uh, 30 years later. So, And all kinds of, no, in fact, I was, yeah, where was I? Some like high-end like anthropology or whatever. I can't even pronounce it. Whatever that store is where all those hot people shop. They were like, they had jumpers, like my 1990s jumper. I was like, come on, man. I could just go back and like resurrect that. Anyway, I got way off topic, but I was trying to, I was trying to wrap my head around this. Like, are we actually drinking more? Like, are we just more self-aware of it? Do we just talk about everything more? See, I do kind of appreciate the 1950s, Sean, when people could just bottle up their problems and they didn't have to talk about it. Now we're all like, oh, I drink too much and all my drugs. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I do think it is an issue that we're seeing. I think we're seeing more employment-related issues around it, more people losing jobs, potentially with a tie-in to alcohol consumption misuse of drugs clearly is going to come up in more security clearance denials and revocations. It's hitting more like folks of different ages. We've talked before about how age is definitely a mitigating factor when it comes to a lot of issues around alcohol consumption and drugs. Harder to mitigate if you're in your 40s, you get a bunch of DUIs. From a societal perspective, I was trying to wrap my head around this topic and see if it really was, but I've got Oppenheimer on the brain and it just seemed like they drank a lot of cocktails back then, Sean, so I'm not sure. Here's what I found interesting because I was thinking similar thoughts in the sense that it does seem historically like at least alcohol use kind of ebbs and flows. Like there are some generations where it seems to be more of a thing and others where it's less of a thing. I think more so recently with this renewed focus on like health. One thing that I found really, really telling is there was a Gallup poll that was done recently that says that the share of people age 18 to 34 who don't drink at all is up to 38% from 28% in the last two decades. So it seems like the numbers are almost moving in different directions. We have young people who are drinking less, middle-aged people who are drinking apparently more. I'm not really sure about the marijuana. I do know in my law practice, I was really surprised at the number of older people who are using marijuana and who would call my office with a security clearance denial or revocation because they were 55 years old and decided to start trying marijuana on a lark. So I don't know what the weed trends are doing, but I certainly know as as it pertains to alcohol, it seems like we have these numbers moving in different directions. And I don't know why, you know, to your point, and we've talked about this before, the the ageism issue is a big deal. It's weird. I, I don't know, you know, what the reason is, but I do think that it's something clearance holders who are kind of mid-career need to be alert to and aware of, like, this is a creeping problem. And if you are somebody who feels like your drinking is getting a little out of control, that's something that I wouldn't write off. And then certainly with the marijuana, which we've talked about a lot, that can be still one and done. So you really, really want to stay away from that. I think it does tie into like productivity, right? And affecting your day-to-day life. So I think there is some issue around like, The government is not going to scrutinize your alcohol consumption unless it is affecting your life. And then the clear flag that we see around the security clearance process is DUIs. If you're getting a DUI, if you've gotten even a single DUI, that kind of triggers, hey, let's look into this. Not necessarily going to result in a denial or revocation, but they're saying, hey, you're drinking enough that it's impacting your judgment. I think that's the bleed over with COVID too, right? More people are working from home, are at home. We don't have those clear distinctions like, hey, I'm working. 
I mean, case in point, I mean, I'm just like, they're having a cocktail party at clearance job at DHI, our parent company right now, which I'm not participating in, Sean, because I'm talking to you, but I'm like, whoa, we're having cocktail parties at 1 p.m. on a Friday, I guess. That is a totally a COVID thing. We were not doing that pre-COVID. The bleed over issue is real. And so I think if that, that becomes an issue where you're kind of, people are questioning your judgment because you're on a conference call and you look a little tipsy, that's going to be an issue. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, it's five o'clock somewhere and I guess we know where now it's clearance jobs. But I think to your, your point about working from home, though, that's actually, in my experience, at least a big factor here. And without that sort of accountability of having to report into an office and knowing that, okay, you know, people are going to be watching me. And if I'm hungover or I reek of marijuana, like someone's going to pick up on that. That's something that I think is a real element to this equation. And, you know, we've seen this in other contexts too, uh, particularly problem gambling. I know that's something that you and I have talked about previously with like online sports betting and how that exploded during COVID when people were sitting at home, they were bored, they were staring at walls all day and going, I, I got to get something to kind of entertain me. And now all of a sudden, a few years later, they're in, you know, five figures of debt and they're trying to claw their way out of it before the government figures out that that's what happened. And they're, you know, at risk of losing their clearance. You know, regardless of the issue, I I, I just think the takeaway here that that I would want to communicate to folks is like, if you are having problems binge drinking, you are, you know, having problems extracting yourself from marijuana use, it's not too late to go and get help. And it's, it's something that I've found even now in 2023, there's still this kind of continued resistance and fear on the part of clearance holders where they say, well, I've got it under control. I'm kind of white knuckling my way through it. Why am I going to go get help? Because that then is going to be the catalyst that alerts somebody that there's a problem. But the reality is white knuckling your way through it rarely turns out well. It, more often than not, something happens that DUI or public intoxication arrest or showing up to work hungover or whatever the case may be where you lose control of the narrative. And so if that's the case and you're just then starting to get help, it's often too late. Whereas if you're doing it preemptively, proactively, you're going out and getting help. Yes, at some point, the government's going to find out about it. Your employer's going to find out about it. But they're going to take a lot more favorable view of you being the one that told them and you saying, hey, I, I went out and I'm proactively getting the help that I need versus finding out in some other way. Yeah, I mean, that was a, that was a big takeaway for me from this is just saying, I think that we, we need to have almost kind of an awareness campaign similar to what the uh, intelligence community and national security community has done around the mental health issue, where we know like data and research says they've, they've done a great job of destigmatizing, getting counseling, seeking proactive mental health. But I think a lot of these other issues like alcohol consumption or even prior drug use, people still try to kind of sweep under the rug and say, no. Anything that you have a problem with, whether it's finances or alcohol or drugs, proactive steps are always the best mitigating factor, whether you're an applicant or you're a security clearance holder. And also just take heed if people are telling you that your alcohol consumption is an issue or, hey, you have a bigger issue with drugs than you think you do, you should probably, you know, put a stop to it before you consider applying for a government job. I mean, listen to that because I think, you know, we're not... We're not as self-aware as we think we are. And so that's a sign and getting help is the best thing that folks can do. Self-awareness, name of the game. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance and Security. 
Please note, the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about the security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning into Security Clearance and Security with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.